Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Welcome back to the show, friends. Today we are doing the April wrap-up. We're talking all things April from the podcast. We're talking about Richard Rohr. We're talking about Rachel Held Evans and more. And if you're thinking to yourself, I loved hearing Richard Rohr and Rachel Held Evans talk, I've got a resource for you that's going to give you more, Rachel and Richard, The Work of the People. They've been our sponsor this month. They've got some great products. I think you should check it out at theworkofthepeople.com, including videos with our friend Richard Rohr and some new stuff by Rachel Held Evans talking about her new book, which I think you're going to find just outstanding. Rohr stuff, outstanding. Everything they do, it's just outstanding. So uh, theworkofthepeople.com is the sponsor for the month of April. And so without further ado, we're going to do the April wrap-up. And so today we are coming to you live from my dining room table with two of my gentlemen friends from the church I'm a part of. Some people you need to know. We're going to start first with the resident Pentecostal, Tim Boykin, and our resident Wesleyan in Stephen Mackey. Tim, Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having us. This is the first time I've had people from the church that I'm a part of come on the show. Do you guys feel just overwhelmingly honored? Absolutely. It's actually the first time that I've been on a podcast of my pastor. So wow, that's got that uh, going for us. Con- con- congratulations. All around. Mm, yeah. and, uh, and so for people who have background, Stephen came up to Denton from Houston. He was on staff at a, was it a Methodist church. That's correct. But he doesn't claim to be a Methodister. He claims to be Wesleyan. Correct. Is that cool? Yeah. And my man, Tim Boykin, was on staff at a Pentecostal, what was the, the, the flavor of your church? Uh, technically, Assemblies of God, but we were all holiness, Pentecostal background. I'm just confused. Every time you and your best friend, Chris Green, talk about it, I'm just, it's, it's all Pentecostal to me. Yeah. Well, if, if Chris Green were my best friend, I would be, uh, what, what would that make me like the second smartest Pentecostal? That's, <laughs> that's definitely not true. No, uh, Robert J- Jens- Jansen, the guy who makes the backpacks, right? Yeah. Same guy. That's I'm the sure. Same guy. I'm sure it's the same guy. Cause you talk about him and, and Chris talked about him a lot too. <clears throat> so he seems like a very smart Pentecostal. I, I, was he not talking about the, uh, Lutheran is is Jensen Lutheran? I, I believe so. Robert Jensen, I believe, is, is Lutheran. Yeah. I didn't think Pentecostals could talk about anyone other than Pentecostals. Yeah, well, that's that's where we're actually different from the Church of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that's hurtful. <laughs> that's hurtful. Why do we have to go there? Now, uh, for everyone who doesn't know, and that would be everyone, uh, Tim and uh, Stephen have uh, been a part of this group that we've been doing for a couple months where we uh, get together often on Wednesday nights. We talk through sermons, talk about ideas for preaching and uh, it's been a lot of fun getting influences from uh, both of y'all's backgrounds. Tim, you're actually currently uh, working on a master's degree through Pentecostal Theological Seminary. Yes, sir. Where Tim yes, sir. teaches. And Mr. Mackey, you've got about a year left at Fuller. That's correct. Fuller Theological. Yes. So we've got just a, a wide swath of theological education going on in here. Yes, yes Stephen and I do. This is correct. Uh-huh. You guys, you guys are allowed to talk now. <laughs> it's a, it's amazing that um, I've got these two gentlemen from my church, and um, they they probably feel like they have to listen to the podcast to be part of the church. Do you guys feel that way? Absolutely not. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no. I I listen to it because I, I've actually really enjoyed it. Um, surprisingly, we're going to get you a, a closer to the front seat after that comment. <laughs> That's exactly what you just earned. We uh, I think the the centerpiece. I think when. Stephen showed up at Venture the first Sunday. I said, hey, Tim, he likes N.T. Wright. You guys can be friends. You did say Absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and tr- <laughs> true story. So 
coming from where I do, uh, just with education and, and uh, kind of being the way that I am, I, I did a lot of research on you before I actually joined oh, the church. Really? And uh, one of the things that I researched was your podcast. And that was actually one of the, the main reasons that we chose the church was uh, knowing that, that you were influenced by the likes of N.T. Wright, Richard Rohr, uh, and, then, and then your ability to engage in the greater ecumenical conversation. And that was that was in, that was a, a big part of why we chose to be a part of Venture. Really, it really was. Well, we're glad you so uh, there you, go. you like the podcast. Yep. And, right and you're part of our church now. Yeah, and now I'm on the podcast. That, Isn't that a funny turn of events? Wow, wow, wow! It's like the the caterpillar has become a butterfly. A large butterfly, but yes, <laughs> a very very large. Now, if people don't know. You actually uh, work with Team Impact. I do. And so you tell people about Jesus while also performing ridiculous feats of strength. That's right. I, uh, I, I, and I've actually gotten a little bit more comfortable. I just claim my job title is an evangelist. Evangelist. Yeah. It, 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 at first, it seemed a little outdated, and I didn't want to claim it. But I said, you know what? I'm going to go all in on it. You're just going to say, I'm... And I'm an evangelist. That's what I do. Yeah, and I also break bats. Break stuff. Yeah. Yeah, which is fun. Now, Tim, when when I first got to know Stephen, I, I think he followed me on Twitter. I think first we had a Twitter conversation, and my first thought was, "Oh, he wants me to be a part of Team Impact mm-hmm. to break stuff." But that he still not ha- it. <laughs> right. He still right. hasn't asked me. Has he asked you? No. What I think he was thinking that both of us could do is just clean up all the stuff that they had broken. <laughs> I don't even think I can lift that. Uh, true story. Actually, just looking to get on the church's missions giving. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you picked a good church for that since we're so huge and have <clears throat> yeah. a huge budget. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to do the, uh, the April wrap-up. And um, so we've got part two of the Richard Rohr conversation. We've got Rachel Held Evans. We've got Lauren Winner. We've got Dr. Joshua Graves. And we have your best friend, Chris Green. Yes, yes. You guys ready to do this? Absolutely. Okay, so Richard Rohr part two. I just love Richard Rohr. That's a good dude, man. Had you guys ever interacted with this material before? Just through your podcast no. and the previous ones. I have not. Never. Never before. You introduced us. Uh, I'm so glad like to. Like a spiritual Cupid. Yeah, that's exactly what I am. Uh, okay, so uh, part two of the, the podcast with Rohr, we did the Enneagram stuff. Is that something you guys had ever heard of before, ever interacted with? Yes, they actually, um, at PTS, one of the things that they have you do is do all this personality testing just to sort of get you started. Uh-huh. You do that before you uh, really do any classwork at all. And that is one of the things that you... It is one of the many things that you do there. So did you already know your number before? Uh, yeah, yeah. Are you, are you, are you I'm, comfortable? I'm a hermit, you know? You're a hermit. five. You're a five? Yeah. You just, you just don't need people. Mm, right. Well, I mean, you know, Pentecostals, we... Kind of keep to ourselves. You just have the Holy Spirit. What else do you need? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Stephen, did you, um, so you, you never heard of. I had never heard of it. No. And so when I listened to the, the podcast part two, as Roar described you and thinking you were a seven, uh, I, I listened to that and I said, oh, wow, that's, that's me. Um, and, but I went back and even though Roar suggested against it, since I couldn't sit down and. Uh, give give him thirty minutes to analyze me. Uh, I did. I took a test. And what did it say? Oh, this is. I'm a, I haven't even told my wife yet. Uh oh. Yeah. So I'm an eight. An eight. An eight. Really? Yeah. It, and it was it was right. It was like borderline between a three and an eight. Like huh. It, it could have gone either way. Uh, and so uh, an eight is is uh, keyed in. Likes to take control. <laughs> mm-hmm. Surprise. And uh, and so that was. Tim's nodding his head. 
yeah. So that's that, that's a big part of a uh, big part of the eight. Uh, it's called the Challenger. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Well, good. I, well, I, I, I claim it. I claim it. Good. Good. Well, I obviously went to Albuquerque thinking that I was a three, and so I talked to to Richard, and he says, "No, I think you're a seven. And I said, "No, Richard, I read your book, so I clearly know more about the Enneagram than you, even yeah, though it's your it book that makes that sense. I, or it makes a lot of sense. Anyway, so he said I was a seven. And uh, if, if you haven't done any work on the Enneagram, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to go read his book or go online and find it somewhere because I'm not going to explain all the numbers to you. But uh, surprisingly, I think he actually knew more about it than I did. Weird. Yeah, how it's that, weird. How that Shocker. Happened. Yeah. So uh, Richard and I had emailed afterwards and kind of went back and forth. And he said, yeah, yeah, you probably just see where you feel at home. And the difference in a seven and a three is like, do you live in your head or do you live in your heart? And the the three is living in your heart. And I remember the first time I went to a therapist and I talked to them about, um, I was talking about something and the therapist goes, well, uh, Luke, I hear you describe uh, how you, you think about this, but um, have you ever thought about like talking about how you feel? And I go, huh, that's a really good idea. I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I didn't think like being at home as a seven or a three in my heart made a whole lot of sense. So I think he's definitely right about a seven and, you know, what I found about the Enneagram is that it kind of gives gives you guidelines to say, this is kind of where you come from and this is okay. And it helped me start to understand kind of the, the reasons why I really like to have something on my calendar that I look forward to. And that why I'm always like extremely optimistic about things and I always see the bright side in it. Is that something that as you guys thought about, especially you've been thinking about this probably for a couple of years and you've had this in your head mm-hmm. and, and Steven, you're just now entertaining it. Is it something that's helped give you a little bit more understanding about who you are? Uh, I think just in reference to, you know, why I have to interact with people the way that I interact with people, mm-hmm. you know, I've been involved in, in public ministry since I was very young, but it's never natural for me to, you know, get up in front of a bunch of people and, and talk. Really? Absolutely not. No, I would much rather do ministry, you know, one-on-one or maybe in a very small group. Now, but I've seen you, uh, you've done a Bible study for years. You had done a Bible study. I went to that mm-hmm. even before you came to our church because we had a mutual friend. And you seemed very comfortable in that. You engaged with people. It wasn't something that looked like you were very uncomfortable doing. Is that something that you've had to kind of work into? Oh, uh, that's, that is years after, you know, the first uh, time that I, I got up to preach. And I was like, you know, sweating and feeling like <laughs> I needed to vomit and you know, all of those things. Yeah. And that probably occurred Every time that I spoke in front of a group of people for three or four years. For three or four wow. years. Oh, yeah. now, now, Stephen, I'm sure you never had a sense of nervousness getting in front of people. That's not you. Wait, can I tell you? Okay, just vulnerable moment. He said that, and immediately I thought, my knees are weak. My palms are sweating. Do you have vomit Wait, already on your yeah, spaghetti? On your mom's spaghetti or something. Yeah. yeah. yeah are you what, forgetting the rhymes you wrote down? It, it's it's tough, man. When you, when you, when you spit so much, it's mm-hmm. just... Yeah. It's hard to keep it all straight. Yeah. And we've got a lot of hip-hop fans who listen to the podcast, so they're going to get the Eminem reference that you just Absolutely. did right there. God, I love Eminems. Y- y- no. I wish you had some. <laughs> no. No. That's not what we were doing there. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, okay, so you're you're an eight. That's what that's what they say. That's what they say. That's what they say. Yeah, so I, I've not spent very much time in it. I'm mm-hmm. uh, much more familiar with um, Meyer Briggs yeah. yep, uh, than I am with this. But as I read the descriptor, of this, I sat and said, wow, that's, yep, that's me. That's me. And, uh, you know, things they you know, they like to work for themselves and not for, uh, not for other people or things like that. So that makes, yeah. yeah, So then I just sat and said, wow, that, that really clicks and it makes a lot of sense. It's crazy how that can, 
can make so much sense when you have, I mean, there's just a few options. It's not like there's 50 of them. There's just, just a couple, but somehow it makes sense. Now, Tim, one of the things that uh, we had talked about before about Roar was that, that you found really interesting was the the stuff in which he was talking about the danger in speaking for God. Mm. What did you find so fascinating about that? Well, really that, that, uh, the interest in that arose for me between just your conversation about being a three and then him sort of explaining how a three could lead to all sorts of, of temptations and, and issues with that. You know, so your, your first thought was, Oh, Luke is really <laughs> jacked up. He's going to screw up the church that I'm a part of. <laughs> uh, that was not my first thought, but now <laughs> you're making me think about it. So, and no, it was really more of a, um, I, I don't think as ministers, that's something that we are conscious enough of. That, how so? That, that is, well, that, that is always an inherent, problem that, that could, I, th- I think that's why we see so many, uh, you know, fallen pastors in the church because it's not something that they're, they're safeguarding against. They don't even think about it. They don't see mm. that as a weak spot. What do you think that they need to safeguard against? What is the, the real threat? Mm. I like, I like, and, and I think Roar would, would probably agree with this. And, and that is how pride leads you in other directions. Mm. You know, I, I don't think like you said, you know, when he, he brought up the sexual temptation, you know, you said, well, wait a minute, how does this get to that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's a very hidden sort of a, a gateway kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. I think there's also something weird when the normal dynamic for you every week is to get in front of people and everyone just closes their mouth, theoretically, and just listens to you talk. You start to really think that people should close their mouth and just listen to you about everything. Have you have you experienced that, Stephen? My wife would say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, and and it does. It, it changes the psyche when uh, people always not not only voluntarily pause to listen, uh, but continually show up to yeah. week after week to give their their hard earned money to invite people in to go. Wow, our, our pastor's got it going on. Yeah, you know, and and if you're not careful, then then you really start to go. Yeah, actually, I do. And, and it, and it's even more difficult because you see all the areas where you're doing really, really well. Um, and it's being, um, affirmed all these areas, these other areas that you're doing well. So all of a sudden, you know, you start thinking, man, I've, I've really got this going on. And if you're not, not careful, you'll, you'll fall blind to, to those, uh, yeah, yeah it's easy for that to happen. Yeah, definitely. And I, I had a friend who was uh, like on the youth camp circuit. And so he'd be gone a lot in the summer. I think he probably was a Baptist guy and gone, you know, six, eight, ten weeks, uh, you know, five, five days a week just at these camps and going from one to the next. And then when he gets off of that, it's almost like he had to um, like decompress because he got so used to people saying, oh, you're so great at this. And you come home and your significant other's going, dude. I, you're the same guy who is, you know, being rude and short at night and you don't do the dishes. And it's just, it, it's, it's kind of hard to go from everyone telling you how wonderful it is because you're the preacher boy to you're actually just a normal human being. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. And, yeah. and changing and differentiating between being good at what you do uh, and just being, or being great at what you do and being a great human. Um, that sometimes there are people who are really, really good at doing something, yeah. speaking, leading, whatever the case may be, but it turns out they're a pretty terrible human being. Yeah. Uh, not that you're a terrible human being. <laughs> but uh, first of all, thank you for saying I'm a great speaker, though. I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, as I said, I'm just going to say the optimistic side of it. But but sometimes the things that make you good in the spotlight are the things that are so dark behind Absolutely. the closed doors. 
Absolutely. And so just looking at someone saying, you've got a good gift at this has no indication on the kind of character they have, which is something that like all of us want to forget because we're the ones who have the traits that people look at and go, oh, well, you know, he really can pray really well on stage, which means he must be a good person at home. No, it doesn't mean that. It just means right. that you can talk. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of people who are good at talking that aren't that good of people. Yeah, you know? sure. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay, so one of the things that Roar also talked about was uh, responding to offenses and how uh, it's, um, yeah. You, you it's a good about marker that. of where you are spiritually. Yeah. How you respond to offense is a great way to sort of determine, you know, where you're at spiritually. Yeah. Much, much better uh, than how well you pray in public. Yeah. That, that just means, you know, to, to borrow uh, some, some Zond language, that just means you have a good liturgy. Yeah, and of course you bring up another Pentecostal. Absolutely, of course. Yeah, yeah. So why why do you think how you respond to offenses is such a litmus test for kind of your character and your maturation process? Well, even and, and I don't think this is something that you just naturally get when you read through the Gospels. Um, certainly not when you read through Paul, because we're listening to characters who have a lot of authority respond to things that could be offenses. You know, most of Paul's letters are, are responses to very negative situations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we might not get that sense that, oh, well, you shouldn't respond angrily because it seems like Paul is responding, you know, quite passionately in, in yeah. many places and Jesus as well. So I don't think that's something you just get naturally just from reading through scripture. I think that's something that comes about through community. You see that that kind of negative response to an offense causes harm to other people. No. And, and a lot of times offense is created unintentionally. Mm-hmm. So then that's sort of like a double, you know, backhand to that person. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen, what do you think? Do you think it's uh, it's easy to respond to offenses without letting it get to you? I would, I would hope so personally. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I do agree that it is a great marker of, of maturity just in the sense of, if for nothing else to be able to remove the emotion from what's spoken mm-hmm. and look, look at it objectively and critically and, and then spiritually recognize that assuming that the person who's brought the, the offense, you know, toward you or, or whatever, um, you know, that, that they bring something valid with that to go, man, I need to consider this. No, you know, it, it's hard to separate the feeling you have of being hurt with the possibility that they might actually be telling a little bit of truth and to be able to kind of, uh, you know, as they do with catfish, you know, you take out the meat and leave the bones and to, to be able to differentiate between, oh, this is hurting me, but there's actually some nugget in there. And that's, yeah. I think that's kind of some next level wisdom stuff. Mm-hmm. Speaking of next level, let's go to the next guest. Uh, our friend, Lauren Winner, Dr. Lauren Winner from Duke University. Duke. Duke yeah. 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 You guys Duke or North Carolina fans? Which one did you choose? Duke. Yeah. North Carolina, Michael Jordan. Come on, man. That is a good point. Coach K. Yeah. Uh, I'm going. I'm going Jordan over. Let's put them in a one-on-one and see who comes out on top. That's true. Wow. I'm going Jordan. Jordan can still dunk. Okay, so uh, our friend Lauren Winter, who is at University of Duke, but she actually is a North Carolina basketball fan. That was weird. That's really I didn't appreciate weird. that. It's just like ugh, I, I kind of wanted to turn the podcast off. That's understandable. Not necessarily because I'm so committed to Duke, but just it's just wrong. It's wrong. It doesn't seem it, right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. No. It's not. Okay, so uh, the thing in her book, uh, the language was about uh, these images of God. And so she throws out a bunch of images that some are normal, some are kind of out of custom for us to, to interact with. Were there any that she talked about that, that took you back? 
when you first heard me, you thought, I've never really thought of God as like clothing, or I've never thought of the childbearing father, you know? That's kind of a weird one. Yeah, that was that was, uh, that was was unique, uh, and, I, and I appreciate Which one? it. I mean, just that the whole, or uh, interesting, I guess would be a better mm-hmm. word, just yeah. that idea. Um, this, I guess, would be one of the images you threw out would be friend of God. Oh, yeah. No. Um, would Would be that image, and that's... That's something that I've heard before. Uh, obviously, there's there's songs about it, and there's there's lots of um, just ideas. Jesus is my homeboy. You've seen the t-shirts and, yeah. and things like that. And and I've always I've always kind of pushed back against that a little bit. And really? So, Why? So when I when I heard her say, you know, view God as as a friend, I, I pushed back, namely uh, because I don't see that picture in scripture. Okay. Um, the, the handful of times just looking in the new Testament and the gospels, um, that friend is mentioned. Uh, the big one is in John 15, uh, when, you know, greater love is no one than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then further on to say, uh, you're my friends. If you do what I command, um, and now I've called you friends, uh, because I've let you know, uh, what I've given to you, what I've received from the father. Mm-hmm. And as I look at that, it, it's easy to go Jesus speaking to the disciples use and coin the term friend. Mm-hmm. And so then we're his disciples. And so then we're also his, his friends. friends. And, and I think that there's what, I, what, I like, what are you scared about with people talking about God as their friend? That we would lose some sense of reverence. Okay. And it's, and it's a, it's a fine line because you do, you do want, to have that mindset of personal relationship. You do want that mindset of, uh, God is intimate, that he is known, you know, known by me and, and knows me. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want to miss the fact that he's King. Yeah. And, and so there's, there, there's a fine line. Uh, but to say, but to say, God is my friend, um, it, it would be, it'd be like if, if I said president Obama was my friend, um, that, I could very well know President Obama, mm-hmm. and we could very well be in a relationship. But I'm friends with President Obama, so you still have the, e- even the though reverence. I call him Barack, he's still the president. president. And you better believe that with all of his secret service and and, and the analogy breaks down. Yeah, but he's at a, he's in a whole different league yeah. than I am. Is that kind of the reason you guys both gave me grief when I told a story about my friend Tom? From across the, the pond in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. It, the reason we give you grief is because you talk about your friend Tom uh, <laughs> 17 times a sermon. Well, I, you, I, you say friend Tom more than you say Jesus. I don't see what's the complaint. I think that's very valid. No, okay. So, you know, Lauren has a quote in the book about, you know, every analogy of God is going to make you say, yeah, that's like God, but no, that's not like God. And right. so like the, the friend of God thing... I get like he's not he's not your homeboy. He's not just some guy that you go fishing with, even though he's got some really cool fishing techniques. Like Jesus is it's more than that, but there's a sense of intimacy that's there. Like there's a closeness and that's kind of like the, the thing about metaphors, it seems like they break down, yes, but they also communicate in ways that just straight Jesus is very close to you. It doesn't connect the same way. Sure, and I think the key is is nuance. Mm-hmm. And and if we nuance these metaphors to go, it's like this, but it's so easy to drop the it's like this yeah. and just go, it is this. Hmm. Uh, and so I think that that maybe is the is the big 
is the big nuance or the, or the big thing for me with this particular, I guess maybe metaphors in general, like, you know, there's a song, I'm a friend of God. Um, I was expecting Tim to start singing that. That, that would have been great. No, absolutely um, not. Turns out that he's an incredible singer. He's, he's got a, uh, I've heard him compared to like a mixture of Jesus and Fergie. Yeah. It'd be awesome if when listeners share this, they said, hashtag, we want Tim to sing. Yeah. That'd be a great hashtag. Yeah. 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 Uh, but when we hear that song in my mind, I go, I am a friend of God. If I do what he says, and it's just, <laughs> it's just that little, like, it's yeah. just for whatever reason it hits. And, and that nuance reminds me, yes, it's like this, but there's some, there's something more. Yeah. Uh, do you, do you think the direction of that metaphor is, is really the problem? What do you mean? Well, it would be very easy for God to relate to us as friend, but very difficult for us to relate to God as friend. God knows us far more intimately yeah. than we can know mm -hmm. him. So, I mean, I think there are ways in which that metaphor is more true than we can really grasp because mm -hmm. God knows us more intimately than anyone will ever know us. And then there are ways in which that metaphor is, is just sort of uh, hilarious. Yeah. It breaks down. Yeah. It does. But I've never thought of it as the, the directionality of it. Yeah. That I've always thought, oh, yeah, we're both coming the same direction. But if it's just God's that close to you, I feel like that might get the heart of maybe what's really coming after. Yeah. yeah. But one of the temptations that I think all of us face, and I think the images kind of communicate this, is that we all wrestle with creating God into our own image. And so we're going to pick images that are closer to us and that make sense to, to maybe who we want to be or who we think we should be. Do you agree, Tim? Well, I, I think it was the the great theologian Luke that uh, quoted on on a recent podcast. I heard that. Um, what was the the line you stole from C.S. Lewis again? Uh, in the that beginning, God created man, and in, in his uh, his yeah. image, and ever since then we've returned the favor. Yeah. Did I? I, I, I was going to give you credit for it, and then I just couldn't. I got halfway through it, and I couldn't do it. That's hurtful, man. I tried, um, but this is what I deal with every Sunday: just <laughs> abuse after abuse. <laughs> I mean, you brought up several metaphors that I don't think are, uh, well, they're, they're foreign to our hearing, but they're not foreign to how we think of God if we really sort of dig in. Like God as clothing, for example. I mean, yes, it, it is a foreign idea to think of God as some inanimate object floating around in our world, but I think we would all relate to biblical language about putting on the righteousness of God. Yeah. So yes and, and no on the metaphor thing. Yeah, it's funny because we... Or at least me, we talked about putting on the armor of God, mm. which might seem more masculine, and it might be more of uh, like a thing as a teenager, like I want to put on some some armor. That's pretty cool. But like, I think uh, Lauren talked about putting on a shawl, which I was like, I don't even know what a shawl is, but I know what a a sword is, and I can definitely put that on. A shawl is something that a lot of older Pentecostal women wear. I can, oh, really? I can attest to that. But to your to your armor of God, uh, there's a there's a big problem I think with that metaphor because. I don't think the appropriate reading, I could be entirely wrong. I don't think the appropriate reading is thinking about personally putting on the armor of God. I think when you read that little passage in context, it's talking about the body of Christ putting on the army, the armor of God, hmm. excuse me. Yeah. Which is a, a completely different meaning. Yeah. And, I, and I, I think, I think if we spent time with Dr. Winter and we are around her, we're discipled by her or familiar with her as a person and we're under her tutelage as it were that this kind of language would be in this, I, this way of understanding God would become much more familiar. 
Um, mm -hmm. Just like if you spent more time with Roar, you'd begin to think more like he would think. Uh, that if you spent time with her, that perhaps this would be something that could become uh, more familiar and then more useful. Uh, because in some sense, you do have to train your mind to, to think this way in the yeah. metaphors of God. Because in doing that, what you're trying to do, uh, at least as I understand it, is you're trying to, to grasp, um, trying to grasp almost something that's intangible. But you're, you're, you're intentionally going after it. And so then you're just looking and going, well, it's kind of like this and it's kind of like that. And you're looking for in all these different ways to see what God could be like. And so then all of a sudden your mind starts to open up to go, this is how God is like this. Yeah. Um, you develop that almost that imagination or that creativity to see God in everything. Sure. And I think definitely if we if we hung around with Lauren, we would uh, we definitely learn to do that because that seems to be something that she's worked at a while. And one of the things we would also do is get to interact with her in the prison ministry that she's connected yeah. with. Yeah. And one of the things that, that was really fascinating is how she talked about being present, that like that was a place, and maybe not in so much a romantic idea, but that was a place in which she felt uh, she was more aware of the presence of God there. Tim, have you ever like had experiences where there are certain places that help you feel more aware and be more present? Oh, absolutely. Um, and they're usually not the places that you really expect, at least for me, they're usually not the places that I expect that hmm. to happen. Like what? Well, you know, being a being a Pentecostal, we always put a lot of emphasis on these, you know, very hyper emotional, hyper spiritual encounters with God. But I mean, the times that I have really felt the most present is when I'm with someone who's in a you know a pretty horrible situation, hmm. attempting to you know reach them or connect to them in some way. Someone hmm. who's sick or someone who's you know experiencing loss. Yeah. Why do Why do you think it would be in those moments that you feel the presence the most? I, I think those are the moments in which we're the most like Christ. Yeah. Yeah. There's that psalm about uh, the Lord is close to those who are crushed in spirit and near to those who are brokenhearted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at the way of Jesus, it's always into suffering and hurt. And we're to, to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, you know. Yeah. That's that, that upside down way of living at the cross seems to point us towards. Yeah. And and that's the that's the natural experience, right? That we say we, we quote unquote, feel the presence most in these really non-common situations. But you said on Sunday that God is just as present in the valleys as he is at the mountaintops. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense that, that, that God's presence doesn't necessarily change in one situation or the other. Uh, so in a lot of ways, it's, it's maybe more that, that our awareness of that presence changes in different situations. And, and I would surmise that, that in those low times uh, that most people would say that if they had to put a finger on it, the reason that they're more aware of God's presence is because they're more aware of, of their inability to handle a situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause it seems like when you feel like you're in control and you've got the world at your, at your fingertips, you don't need to be aware of the presence of God because in some ways you are acting as though you are God. But once yeah. you, you lose that, it's, it, it, it's humbling and, uh, I like to, to swim. It's one of my things I like to do maybe once a week or so. And there's something about like getting in the water is that you're like, you're out of control. Like you're in this massive, you know, presence that, you know, you can swim for a while. Some may be longer than others possibly, but, uh, uh you know, eventually you are kind of swept away in the, the bigness of like the ocean or whatever. And, um, yeah, that's, it's definitely humbling. 
Yeah. And so I, and and I like to I like to think of it as is that I'm never surprised when God does move mm-hmm. in in moments like that or, or or whenever, but I'm always surprised in the ways that he does. Yeah. Um, and so it just it gives me the sense that at any moment God could just I could become more aware of, of God's presence and in so doing, um, see God at work and be aware and, and maybe then begin to move towards what he's working in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, good stuff. Definitely. Definitely. Well, obviously trying to keep up with where God's going and where God is, is a hard thing to do. And, you know, Rachel Held Evans is, uh, I think in many ways, like a the Oprah of like progressive Christianity. She has definitely found this niche and she is a voice for, for so many people. And she's been able to connect in such a large way through her blog and her writing. And so I was excited to get to talk to her and uh, and, and her new book. Had, had you guys um, had any familiarity with her, her work before this? I'd read a lot of her blogs. That's, that's about it, though. Yeah. yeah, I had not. And I would say that some people would argue whether or not that's a compliment. To call her the Oprah of progressive Christians. Well, I think that's a compliment. Well, I just want you to clarify. Like, I, I think some people may go, wow, that's not much of a compliment. No, I meant as a compliment. I think <laughs> I said that even in the interview. And uh, I think she said to me without words, just a subtle head nod, even though it's just a phone call, not a <laughs> face-to-face conversation. I think she was saying thank you to me when I said that. If anything's like Oprah, especially like your bank account, you're doing well. Well, yeah. She was at the the White House Correspondence or the uh, White House Prayer Breakfast two years in a row on Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. Good for her. I think she said she's going to bring me next year. I mean, I thought that was a joke, but oh no, 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 no! I, I mean, you do have it on on record. Yes, I do, <laughs> and so I'm going to send it to. I guess Barack's not going to be there next year, is he? Yeah, he'll He's, be there. Yeah, he'll be there. Is it one one more year? No, I guess he won't be. Because it'll be spring of 16. He may still be there just because... He might be hanging out. I mean, I mean, as a former president, I mean, there's not yeah. a whole lot of rules well, for your life. I'll send an email to Claire Underwood, or maybe she can send it to her husband and they can get me No, out. he'll be there because it, the election's not until the fall of 16. And that's sure. the spring of 16. <laughs> now, people talk about how uh, we lean like Anabaptist, and that's kind of my leaning. The fact that I didn't know when the new president would be inaugurated, I think pretty much confirms how Anabaptist I am. I don't even know. Okay, uh, Rachel Evans. So her book, uh, it was talking about church, and it surprised me because there's a part of her book in which she was talking about how her online community enabled her to have the courage to leave her church that she grew up in. And I thought she was going to make a point about how community is something you can find everywhere, and if... Um, if you're connected to people and fellow Christians, that's church for you, and it doesn't have to be flesh and blood because it's you know 2015, so things look different. And I was I thought that's where she was going, so I asked her the question, and she said, "No, you can never replace flesh and blood people next to you." W- why do you think that is? Or do you agree? You guys agree with that? I could be convinced either way. Really? Yeah, you, I think so. So you could be convinced that church doesn't necessarily have to be the people like you're with. Every day it could be the people online. I think it could be if, if it was really? done correctly, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to be convinced. I haven't thought a whole, whole lot about it. Yeah. But, I, I mean, obviously it's not something that that the New Testament could have conceived of. The internet being a, right. a suitable replacement. Yeah. But if, if the body is acting like the body, hmm. then why would it matter? Why would it matter where the body is? And, and she, she says... That if I remember correct, it matters because at church you're around people you might not normally choose to be around. Yeah, she did. Which 
I didn't agree with. I, I didn't understand where she was coming with because her, her thought, if, as, I, as I recall it, was to say that um, in online communities, you block and you choose who you want to be a part of and who you want more or less the same kind of people are going to read her blog. I agreed with that. She said, but that's not what happens in the church. I thought, well, isn't that what um, her coalitions do? Like, I mean, I, I intentionally choose not to go to a Calvinist church because I don't think like they think. Hmm. I intentionally choose to go to a church that values uh, my way of thinking because I don't want to go to church and argue with the pastor or have to go home and then explain to my son, well, son, the pastor said this, but we really believe this. So in some ways we do that very thing. Right, which is why you have Baptists and Methodists and all these different denominations in that that people choose to be around the people that are like them. So I, I didn't understand because she said that in, in her church community, there was the, the redneck guy that, you know, voted different than her and yeah. had different values, but at the table they came together. Yeah. And, and I guess my experience was different than hers, but I, I just kind of assumed that, that we typically in general, humans choose community With based people on people that are like them. Yeah. It, it seems like we choose uh, to have homogenous community, it seems like the kingdom of heaven is pointing towards like this inclusive group of people that have Christ in common, not just their political leanings or philosophical yeah. leanings. And I think what she was trying to and I think I'm right about this. But there's danger in speaking for Rachel Head Evans. There is. So I'll just say this: I think what you know we should be pushing towards as a church is to be able to tear down the barriers that divide us and hold to one central thing. And so you're going to have differences, but like you're saying, uh, you know, you don't go to Calvinist church because you're not a Calvinist person, and that's a high priority for you. Yeah. Well, I, part of her experience, though, that is indicative of a small town is that there aren't five churches to choose from. Yeah. There might only be two. The The town that I grew up in, uh, you know, unless we wanted to drive 20, 30 minutes, uh, we had two churches that were an option. Mm-hmm. And... You know, back to but back to what what Stephen was saying. Um, I, I do agree that we choose if we have a choice, we choose to go to a church that more suits our leanings. But what we can't choose is, uh, you know, do I or do I not interact with this person that really gets on my nerves that also goes to this church? Hmm. Um, you know, in her her example, you know, being in a small town, having a more progressive mindset you know, a more conservative mindset really rubs her the wrong way, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be ideological. It can just be that that person is really annoying yeah. and you can't, you can't get around that, you know, yeah, when you, true. when you do life with them. But also back to what Stephen was saying, I don't think that an online experience can ever replace, um, a, a physical church with physical people. Why not? Well, there is something about um, the simplicity of shaking someone's hand, um, about being able to, you know, come over to the pastor's house for dinner, about, uh, you know, being able to physically sit at the table, not just communion, but the table of fellowship in, in someone else's home who's a part of your church. I think you need to, to at least to some extent, do life with the people that you do church with. Yeah. And part of what the online presence can be is a projection of what you want people to right. see. And 
real life, we all do that. I mean, we all put the facade on and some of us, it's a little bit brighter than others. And some of us, it's a little bit stronger, but we're all trying to project what we want people to know about us. But you have a greater ability to do that online than you do in person. Because in person, eventually you realize, oh, he is flawed. He is imperfect. She isn't the, the person she always wants to be. But you know what? I can still love and accept her. And online, it seems like if you play the game correctly, you never have to take the, the facade off. But doesn't Bonhoeffer say, you know, God hates visionary dreamers in reference to, you know, people having this perfect vision of what the church is supposed to be like? Hmm. Obviously, he's you know using some excessive language on purpose, but yeah. I, I don't think God would ever want us to to find the quote perfect community because then what what value would there be in never being shaped or changed or pushed or, or you know? And obviously, guess, the perfect community is the venture community. But <laughs> clearly, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I hear that. I just I just feel like everything that each of you are saying in for or against for the in person community and against the online could be said about the other. So I, I can, I can keep my facade on in person just as easily and just as long as I can online okay. because I choose when I go to church, I choose how much I interact with somebody. I no. choose whether or not I go to small group and on and on and on. And in the same way, I could just as easily choose to be intentional about making Skype conversations, Google hangouts, mm -hmm. and then, and then, talking and and going on and on but the one thing you can't do online you can't do the sacraments in the sense that you can't share the exact piece of bread yeah. but i could have bread and you could have bread and we could take it at the same time there's i think there's something in my one of my the favorite thing about our church is we have tables set up around the room and every sunday we uh we invite people to go to the tables and we tell everyone to say in something along the lines of this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And you kind of hear like this chorus of people kind of saying their own little spin on it. And there's something about that tangible thing of being able to have that bread and that, that cup in your hand. And then hearing that I think is so sacred, which I know maybe you could create some spin off of that, but maybe I'm just old school. Uh, well, I'll, th this thought came to mind. If your only option if your only option was to go online, yeah, that would be just as real and you would value it and you would appreciate it and you would look forward to that just as much as you do if you went in person because that's that's the space that you had to be in the community. Hmm. And it would it would be it would be as real and about like for example, if you were uh for some reason stuck on a on an island, you had remote access to other people but you couldn't get off for whatever reason. Like that time would be so very real. Yeah. And if it would be real when you had to have it, couldn't it also be real when you didn't have to have it? Yeah. Now I'm not, I'm not saying that this is the best option. If you have the opportunity to go to church and don't do mm -hmm. it just to remove yourself, because then there are other issues involved in that. I choose online because I don't want to be around people. Well, that's a, that's a different issue, mm -hmm. but I think inerrantly there's, there's nothing to say that, an online community. And again, depending on what you make it. Yeah. Uh, There's definitely some benefits you could have from an online community. And in, in a situation, especially like you just described where someone's in a situation that they are physically unable to connect with people. I think God somehow works in online presences in mysterious ways too, because that's just what God does. So we need to um, be appreciative for what we have. One of the things that we do have is we have a book about Christians 
and Muslims that we're going to talk about. Hey, yo. Dr. Joshua Grace, friend of the show, Josh Grace, came on the podcast. He actually offended my dad. I was talking to my dad today. He offended him? He did. He said, How did he offend him? He said uh, something about coming on the podcast, and I said, um, you know, it's uh, something about you being on. He said, yeah, it's like I'm family. It doesn't even matter. And I thought, and my dad said, well, I'm glad you feel like you're part of the family, but are you saying it doesn't matter when I'm on the podcast? And wow. my dad... Dr. Larry Norsworthy is going to bring some heat on Dr. Joshua Graves. There's going to be a throwdown. Wow. Yeah. See, I, I thought that was just more of a reference of <clears throat> it's not indicative of how famous you are if your dad will come on because he's your dad. And even if you were nobody, your dad would My still dad, come on Yeah, because but he I, loves you. But I feel like because his dad has proper boundaries, his dad would tell him if he wasn't doing well. And he would say, son, <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to come on this podcast <laughs> You're because bringing it's me a down. waste of my time. You're bringing me I'm down. Not, he did, obviously, he hasn't said that yet. He's come on several times. Yeah, he has. He, he did a great wrap-up. He did. Uh, a couple couple weeks ago. I love that I love that he said uh, at the beginning, he said, well, you know, I, I don't want to ask all the questions of you, so I'll just, I'll just ask this one and then like 13 questions <laughs> later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a psychologist, though. Yeah. So, Luke, tell me how exactly you feel right now. He, Sorry, he, he probably he probably has some kind of analysis broken down of of each of us. He's taking notes on us yeah. as he's by now. He's this. like, this is what uh, we need to do. And Tim, well, he's too far gone. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Stephen, ooh, Luke, you need some better friends. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to uh, the uh, conversation that we had about um, Christians and Muslims, which is a I think it's a very important question, and I, I think the centerpiece of what Graves is arguing is that because of our commitment to Jesus. We are called to enact the Good Samaritan story today to our neighbors of the Islam faith, which is different than what the argument of Miroslav Volf is because he believes that it's actually the same God that we're serving. And those are drastically different takes. And I think what Graves is calling for, though, is a similar sort of love to, towards everyone, even if you disagree. Yeah, two, two things. First, I thought uh, Josh did a great, great job of responding to to Wolf's, Wolf's assertion and uh, that he said for him and and I would agree that wherever he wherever anyone takes Wolf's argument it comes to a screeching halt in the person of Jesus and that how you handle Jesus changes the game uh, and so so I really appreciated that uh, and then secondly I would say that that in the good Samaritan and the call of Jesus is not just to nuance how, that we are to engage and interact with just those of the Islam is our Muslim faith, uh, but of people of all faiths no. um, and, and all people. And it maybe is most, most like the good Samaritan in popular culture with the Muslim, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not necessarily Limited. Just for or limited to. Yeah, that story can be played out with different characters in different yeah scenarios. Absolutely. Yeah, obviously we could see that um, uh, the day we're recording this uh, on a Wednesday, which uh, is the kind of the throes of all the the stuff with Baltimore that's going on, which is just a heartbreaking situation. And it's uh, I mean it could be very easily the Good Samaritan story played out with uh, you know the inner city community, the uh, the police officers, the uh, the sub suburbs, you know, all the people involved. I mean, there's a good Samaritan story, opportunities for that to be played out over and over again. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I, I really appreciated this uh, this particular podcast. Obviously, it was great that, that you guys go back, but um, 
the the idea I think that that jumped off the page at me the most was just this idea of it's our responsibility to engage in conversation mm-hmm. and to engage those of different faith, which it's engaging is different than uh, being prepared when you encounter. You How know, so? What do you mean? In the sense that there's there's a paradigm or perspective of intentionality when you seek to engage someone. And it's to say, I want to go into this um, maybe more concerned with conversation than conversion. Mm-hmm. I want to go into this uh, with the with the mindset of this is a long-term play. Um, and that long-term may be different from situation to situation, but it's not, I want to blow in, blow up, correct where they are wrong, and then convert them. I want to engage in a legitimate conversation that's a two-way street that seeks to understand and seeks for, for both parties to be able to understand. And just like he invited that couple in, that family in to come to Easter service, uh, that he would be just as willing to go to a service that they might invite him to. Yeah, for him to make a trip over the moss too. Yeah. Uh, Tim, tell me again the name of the uh, the town you grew up in. Shakota. Shakota. How many people are in Shakota? Mm, way less than in uh, um, Rachel Held Evans' hometown. <laughs> so you're talking like six hundred people or something, maybe twelve hundred. <clears throat> when I was a kid, there were probably somewhere between five hundred and a thousand. Oh, five hundred and a thousand. Yeah. How many of those five hundred to thousand people in Shakota, Oklahoma, Texas? Texas. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't know why I said Oklahoma. not not Carrie what, not Carrie Underwood's hometown. Okay. Different Shakota. Oh, I'm sorry. Didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that part, uh, I actually had a listener say, I think they're from uh, Australia, say, Luke, I enjoy like all the little things you do about the different places because I'm learning geography of the United States. So they just learned something new right there. Shakota, right. Oklahoma, Carrie Underwood. Shakota, Texas, Tim Boykin. Synonymous. Yeah. You know? So this town of 500 to 1,000, small town Texas, how many mm-hmm. people there would be considered Muslims? Oh, definitely zero. <laughs> definitely zero. Definitely zero. Okay. Yeah. You would have um, some Baptist people. Uh, some... Is that the closest thing you had to a Muslim? Well, we got some Baptists. No, no. Nope. We, we, you would have some Baptist people, some Pentecostal people, and some uninterested people. Okay. All right. And so you're growing up in a town. Mm-hmm. You do not have a Muslim neighbor. You don't right. have an exchange student who comes over from uh, a part of the world that is an Islam country. No, you have nothing. No. Now, when I went to high school... Paris, Texas, which is about um, 15, 20 miles away, you, you go from a town of you know a thousand maybe on a good day to a town of twenty seven thousand, which is not large, but is certainly larger than a thousand. Mm-hmm. And still, in my high school, I, I don't recall there were a few people there who were from India, and maybe a few people there from Pakistan. Very few though, mm-hmm. and I don't recall ever encountering the Muslim faith in that time. But then when I went to college, my Mm -hmm. undergrad in Tulsa, you go to a town of 500,000 people. And I started working at Mervyn's. You guys familiar with that? No. Tiny little clothing store. No, no. Yeah. More than half of the employees there were Muslim. Really? So it was pretty big. So you think about like the interaction and the, the, the typical relationship that a person from a small town, Texas, small town, Oklahoma, would have towards their idea of a Muslim because they didn't actually have a flesh and blood person. Mm-hmm. Where do you where do you think that relationship um, lies? How do they, how do they picture them? 
Well, the problem is that there is this um, thing that just jumps in into our mind that, oh, we have to approach this differently than, you know, I do my relationship with, with you or Stephen. I mean, I just, you know, invited some of them over and cooked chicken. Yeah. You know, just come over to my house. We'll have dinner and hang out and watch a movie. And, you know, two years uh, into college, I, I took two of the young men to see Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Did you really? Yeah. How'd that go over? Uh, you know, I, I was unfamiliar with their idea that on the cross, it's actually Judas, not Jesus, that there's some supernatural substitution there. It's a big change. Yeah. I, big I, was, change. I was completely unaware of that. But, you know, really my only goal in, in taking them was to ask them, you know, after they had seen this, um, do you understand why we are passionate about what we believe the way that you are passionate about what you believe? How'd that conversation go? Uh, it was a very mute conversation. Really? Not, not a whole lot of response to that question, actually. Huh. As in they were, they just didn't want to. Yeah, they didn't. I I don't know if they didn't really want to engage that question or they didn't really know how to engage that question without somehow compromising, you know, their own beliefs. Hmm. Well, obviously, you know, the thrust, I think what, what Graves is trying to get us to do is to engage us with the conversation and prepare us with the idea so that we can be ready to be present with people who are different from us. But it's not just us that need to have the ability to have a conversation. It's it's a two sided street. And if they're not, if if someone's not willing to converse with you, no matter how good Samaritan ish you are, right. conversation's not going to happen. Well, and and I would say that a lot of that had to do with my uh, naivete. I hope I said that right. Yeah, that sounds um, good of, to me. Of taking them to see the Passion of the Christ and, <laughs> and not realizing that it wouldn't be the best representation <laughs> of the Gospels. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's, um, I mean, obviously there's a, you know, if you just want to go event by event and try to create some sort of historical reenactment based on the gospels, there's a lot of that in, in mm -hmm. the film, but they miss really the, the, this is me maybe causing problems on your podcast, but mm -hmm. I think they really miss the thrust of the gospel with Gibson's film. Well, so. you know, Gibson obviously read it through a, um, an interpretation where the cross is all about pain and, and, and hurt. And maybe Mark might say it's more about shame and, and there's, um, yeah, so th anyway, to get back to the, the, the point of what I think uh, How Not to Kill a Muslim is trying to encourage us to do is to be able to love people, even if they're different from us, because it's not about them. It's about being a Jesus person who sees the image of God in everyone. And let me tell you one person that I know you see the image of God in. Your BFF. I almost want to call him like your Lord and Savior, but that might be a little bit too far. A little bit. But Chris Green, bit. I have heard you rant and rave about Chris Green for as long as we've been friends. Mm -hmm. And so to finally get to meet him, I felt like I was going to a family reunion. Right. Right. And, um, and Stephen, you never heard of Chris Green before, had you? No, I've not. No, you're not. And I, I would actually, you know, say I, I would kind of be interested to hear Stephen's take on that conversation okay. because obviously I'm coming at that conversation very familiar with pretty much everything Chris is going to say. I mean, mm -hmm. I've listened to every sermon that the man has ever had on the internet. Oh, jeez. Fanboy. Absolutely. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was a a good a good podcast. You did a great job as always. Oh, thank Not you. that this is about you. Maybe a little but, bit. Hey, did I get enough like positive? I know you said I needed a, a certain number. Mm -hmm. Is Ten. that enough? 10. Okay, I got a few more. You're about 7 right now. Man, you're doing a great job with this podcast. You're facilitating. This 
you're facilitating the snot out of this thing. <laughs> okay, so uh, so when you hear Chris Green, yeah, it was it was good. What uh, did you think about the stuff about um, New Testament and a lot of the Old Testament? Yeah, that that was one that that for me was tough uh, to to swallow, and and I get, I think I get where he's coming from, but for me, and this is maybe more about me than it is about him. For me, it's important. It's important to begin with what the text originally meant. Okay. And so if we're looking at the Old Testament, it's important, as best we know how, to time travel back and to think as the psalmist would have thought or as the prophet would have thought or mm-hmm. to, to think on the narrative for the narrative's sake okay. and then work from there forward and then understand that the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament in ways that that we can't. And I know that he railed against that that exact idea, mm-hmm. um, to which I would simply say that they were the inspired authors and, and we were not and we are not. Uh, and so it's important in my view, uh, to begin with what the authors would have intended mm-hmm. and then work forward. And then when we look back and see Christ to nuance that to say that the Old Testament writers didn't intend it, but the early church saw, saw it, it in there. They yeah. saw it. And so now we see it, um, even though that wasn't what was intended. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, Tim's starting to cry because you've hurt his feelings talking about his hero. So let's give him a chance, wipe the tears away, and then you can respond. Uh, I mean, I just think it's a, a, a basic theological difference. I, I don't think that there's a really a good concrete way to say there's a way to win that debate one way or the other. It's just a, 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 con, a very concrete theological difference. Yeah, but you still are going to respect the historical criticism. and you're Absolutely. Gonna, you know, you're going to take the time to do that work, yeah. um, but you still think... Well, I, I would say, okay, so... Let's take a like a really like a smaller book in the Old Testament, something like Amos. You know, if you were to pick up a, a set of very, uh, you know, not Matthew Henry style commentaries, but you know, scholarly commentaries, and and then you were to go through a lot of journal articles on the different issues related to original intent, uh, interpretation, things like that, on the Book of Amos, you're going to find an incredibly small amount of agreement between the authors. Okay. That was, um, Amos was, uh, actually a book I did uh, a paper on for old Testament one Oh one at, at PTS. Um, I keep on thinking you're going to say PTSD. No. Cause you leave there with a disorder because of, <laughs> you um, could, all the Pentecostalism. You, you, you could, get if you're with. around uh, too many Pentecostals for too long, you can certainly <laughs> develop that disorder. Uh, uh-huh. But, uh, okay, so there's going to be disagreement when you look at the text. Well, and the disagreement to the to the extent that I don't think with, and certainly you you can't say this you know in a broad way, but most of the Old Testament, I don't think there's a way to get a clean idea of what authorial intent or original intent uh, of that text was. Yeah, and this is a conversation that we've kind of had underneath the surface of all the. The, the text work that we do when we're writing sermons. And, uh, you know, one of the, the things you said before was a, a comment that I was having with uh, a conversation with Pete Entz because we were talking about interpretation. Mm-hmm. And um, and do you remember what you said to me? 
something we were talking about midrash and you know, pay, play fast and loose with the text, and you said something about my sermons, which was just completely uncalled for. Well, I mean, you, I, I don't recall my exact uh, wording, certainly not, but I mean, I think you midrash as much, certainly as well as, but How also as much you. as anyone else. On my own podcast. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we, but his point is we all, we all do that and we all. Right. right. Now, you know, back, but back to what Stephen was saying, you know, there is certainly a way in which you can midrash with either a greater emphasis on historical criticism or a lesser emphasis. And that's, that was kind of what I was saying originally. I don't know that there's a way to resolve uh, which one of those is, is correct with the, the current theological tools that we have. Yeah. I think you can argue for both. Yeah. Interesting. I, I was really perplexed by the idea that all scripture is, is flat. And I'd always thought, no, like Jesus even himself elevates certain things to be paramount. And, you know, Paul himself will say, you know, I receive what I passed on to you as of first importance. And Jesus says, you know, the grace of these is to love God and love people. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like you even see in the text, like they're elevating certain things to be more important. And so I, I really probably need to talk to Chris about this and get more of his, his take on it. But one thing I think we all can agree on is the line about a healed body is no closer to being a resurrected body than a sick body. Mm. How good is that? That was, that was strong. Very, very strong. strong. I, I did like that. I, I took note of that. You did? I did. I, note, I, I wrote that down on my notes. Really? I did. Yeah. I, he said, I was like, wow, that's... That's really good because he's, he's pointing towards an eschatological reading of everything. Yeah. And it always points towards what is a resurrected body. It's always going back towards resurrection, something that happened back then, continues to happen, but one day it will happen in summation, and that's what everything points to. Mm, that's good. And I think that's really the hope of, that's the hope of the gospel, right? Yep. It's, it's not that we won't experience death, but that death won't have the final say. Yeah. And, and that, that to me, uh, I think he, he caught that well. And going, no, 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 you're, you're missing the point. If, you, if you're pushing for the healed body, you're missing the point that death isn't the end. Yeah. Um, and, and that, I thought, was, was a really great, uh, great job by him. Yeah. I was kind of shocked at how closely that conversation went with the conversation that you and I had talking about the, the upcoming yeah. sermon on prayer. Well, you know, we're doing a series on prayer at our church, and... Uh, I'm very comfortable with the mystic reading on prayer. I'm very comfortable with, uh, you know, Lewis's, you know, what changes in prayer is, is us, not God. I, I, I resonate very much so with that line of thinking of prayer helps us be aware of the presence of God. But there's this tradition that our Jewish brothers and sisters help us see, and it's a tradition that the Scripture talked about where you wrestle with God and you argue. And I thought, you know what, I need to get my Pentecostal brother on the stage for this one. And so we're going to have that conversation. And so part of the conversation I had with uh, with Tim, with, excuse me, I called Chris Tim, but the conversation I had with Chris was like, well, help us write that sermon, and we'll just do this in a couple of weeks' adventure. Yeah, yeah so, absolutely. Yeah, it was great. Um, okay, I think we covered them all. Boys, you guys just survived your first podcast. Wow. Yeah. Hey, thanks yeah. if you're still listening. Yeah. We appreciate you. Thanks, yeah. Mom. Appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, guys, I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for uh, for joining me on the podcast. And um, we've got some good stuff for you next month. Next month, uh, Praxis Conference. We're going to be live down there. In Houston, Texas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Home of the first place Houston Astros and the Houston Texans. Mm, they're, they're in first place? The Astros are. One of the, the hottest teams in baseball right They've got now. 16 wins or something in yeah, the first nine, 20. Nine and one out of the last 10. Did they even win nine games last year? They did. Thank you very much. <laughs> Not at this point in the season last year. No. Maybe. No. All right, boys. Fun. Good times. See you.
Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>